Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the ways that conservative policies willed into existence almost exclusively by white people measurably harm people and shorten life expectancies, including those who most fervently support these self-destructive policies. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that we here at the show are facing a fiscal cliff at the end of the year. This is no joke. This is not merely a test of our emergency broadcast system. This one is for real. Our advertising broker, which helps bring in about a third of the income that the show depends on, is demanding that I begin tracking and spying on the behaviors of listeners for the benefits of advertisers. And as you will hear at the end of the show today, doing this would also decrease the quality of the show itself. So it puts everyone's privacy at risk. It makes the show actually worse. And that's what they're demanding I do. So if I refuse to do this, which I will, then as of January 1st, they're going to drop the show and we're going to lose about a third of our monthly funding. So to fill that funding gap, I'm running a membership drive for the rest of the year. Our next goal is for 50 new patrons to sign up this week. Even if you can only afford a buck or two, that's fine. Every patron counts. Every dollar adds up. So we need 50 by the end of this week. If you get value out of the show and can afford a couple of bucks or a few bucks or 10 bucks or whatever to support us, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, on to the show. Clips today come from Now This, Slate Presents, The Queen, Why Is This Happening, The Brian Lehrer Show, Brave New Words, and Speak Out with Tim Wise. Usually you see shortening lifespans um, after a famine, after Hiroshima, after the fall of the Soviet Union. But it doesn't happen in 2015 the United States, a time of prosperity and lowering crime rates and factors like that. There really are very few historical correlates for what we're seeing in the South and Midwest right now. What we're seeing is shortening lifespans, and not just shortening lifespans, but shortening lifespans among people who are in the demographic majority, white men. That, that issue, just in the past 100 years, really is 1915 to 1918. That's the last time that white men have had a three-year drop in, in lifespan the way they're seeing it now, and that's because of the First World War and the flu, you know, the flu pandemic. reason we're seeing shortened lifespans is in part about addiction and part about economics, but it's also about particular health policies. And what I'm trying to illustrate is these are terrible health policies. <laughs> it's almost like an epidemic or what eco economists have, have called deaths of despair. But the irony here is that people are voting for these policies that are shortening their own lifespans. For example, uh, in Tennessee, I studied what happened when the state blocked um, really implementation of the Affordable Care Act or, um, or, or expansion of any kind of government health care safety net. And what I found was that that act alone ended up costing every white person in the state on the aggregate about two to three weeks of their life. Uh, when I looked at uh, the liberalization of gun laws in the state of Missouri, 
This, the, the effects were pretty remarkable. What happened as it became easier and easier to get guns, uh, on one hand, many people felt like that was um, bolstering their Second Amendment rights, but when I looked at the health data, what I saw were soaring rates of not just gun homicide, but also gun suicide, accidental shootings, um, partner violence, and ultimately what I found was that the, that the lost, there were over 12,000 lost life years just in the first five years that those policies ended up passing. In the state of Kansas, they basically did these massive tax cuts that ended up um, enriching people at the very top of the economic system, but were terrible for working class people. And what happened when you started to cut away budgets from schools is that people started to drop out of high school. And what I found in my research was that dropping out of high school correlated with about a five to seven year shorter lifespan for a variety of reasons. These politics of racial resentment have long and often invisible histories in, in the South. And so part of what I try to tell in the book is a history of why these issues weren't just invented yesterday or even with the election of President Trump. When, you, when I talk to everyday people, really, I found a longing to solve some of these issues. In other words, people wanted better health care. Uh, they wanted safer communities. The problem was there were so many divisive messages coming through that told them, if you agree to any form of gun control, you're no longer a, a good conservative, you're no longer a good white person. If you agree to any form of Obamacare, that's not our platform. And so in a way, these policies were being coded as almost racial identities is what I call them in the book, that to give an inch was to give a yard. And to even consider something that might be a bit more centrist was coded as treason. I wasn't trying to assess who was racist and who wasn't. I, I don't know what was in any person's heart, and I wasn't doing an assessment of their identity. Um, the, the, the key piece of information, as far as I'm concerned, was whether or not an individual person was racist. The risk factor came because they elected politicians whose policies were based in this, these rhetorics of racial resentment, in other words, anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun policies. And when those policies became what dictated the policies of particular states, everybody's health suffered regardless of whether they themselves were racist or not. I'm encouraged that there are progressive movements bubbling up in many in many southern states, and I think that um, younger voters, in particular, who are feeling energized, are pushing for healthcare. They're pushing for common sense gun laws that respect the Second Amendment, but also try to stem the tide of epidemic levels of, of, of gun injury and death. But I do think part of the issue is the minute that um, working class conservative voters start realizing that these policies are killing them and asking for better policies from their leaders, I think that's, that's the moment that, that things begin to change. My guest is Janine Interlandi, a member of the New York Times editorial board and a contributor to their 1619 project, which observes that this year is the 400th anniversary of the first African people brought to the United States in slavery and the implications of that to this day. Her article focuses on health care and why the United States doesn't have universal health care to this day, unique or almost unique among industrialized nations, and that it has to do with the history of race in this country. So here's another um, example. Way back when, you write, um, the argument about 
dependence on government benefits came up. We hear that to this day. Of course, it was a big, you know, Paul Ryan thing when he wanted to cut benefits in the name of the budget. It was a big Newt Gingrich thing in the 90s when they had that big welfare reform. Do you have an origin story kind of of the dependence of recipients as a scare tactic? I think that again goes right back to when they established the Freedmen's Bureau and the ambivalence that we were just speaking of. So there was enough push I think from the northern states and also from the newly emancipated themselves. So they became some of the first advocates for federal health care because they were being denied charity care. They were be being denied, you know, just basic sustenance. And so former black soldiers who had been uh, promised certain rations petitioned their leaders for for medical care and for more food for their families. And that became some of the first advocacy towards this. And um, what else? Yeah, so I think that was kind of the beginning of all of that. In terms of the origin story, the pushback against that again happened in Congress where they said um, black people are idle by nature, um, they're lazy by nature, and it's actually, again, this biological difference that the best way to keep them healthy is to subject them to hard labor. And, and mm. we former slaveholders know more about black bodies and about black health than anybody else, and this is what we're telling you. If you give them help, it's just going to breed dependence because that is the, the way they are biologically made. And we did a segment last week, which was about all the ways when it, after it no longer became politically acceptable to say, black people are idle by nature and things like that, um, <clears throat> that the rhetoric shifted to things like, well, we just don't want Americans to become dependent on benefits. Yeah. But sort of everybody knew who they were talking about. Yeah. And one of the interesting things to me is, you know, I've reported a little bit on the Medicaid work requirements. And one of the arguments that comes up with that, um, people who support Medicaid work requirements will often argue that gainful employment is foundational to health. And that's not entirely wrong. If you have gainful employment, you're likely to be more healthy. But the relationship is actually goes the other way around. You need to be healthy in order to work. But that argument that that working is the is the key to being healthy it goes back again to the to the uh, creation of the Freedmen's Bureau and the resistance against that. And you're jumping way ahead of yeah. the historical <laughs> narrative, but let's go there because it was another interesting thing in your piece. Um, the backlash to Obamacare, I guess it was part of, where Arkansas established recently a work requirement forcing nearly 20,000 people off their insurance plans. Uh, and of course, the work requirement for benefits you know, are generally premised on what many consider a legitimate social contract was um, if you want the rest of the American people, the other taxpayers, to pay for your health care or pay for your food stamps or whatever it is, um, you owe them to work in exchange. Exactly. And it wasn't just Arkansas. Arkansas was the one state that I think was able to implement them before it went through the courts and it was stopped. But there are several states that are actually still trying to do that. And some of those are in appeals right now. So it's kind of hanging in the balance whether we'll have work requirements or not. And I guess the number in your article at that point um, indicates the the implications of having work requirements. I guess we could go through all of these people and find out if they just, oh, they didn't feel like working. So they gave up their 
their health insurance um, or if there were real obstacles to them working. But 20,000 people in one yeah. state losing their health insurance because of a work requirement means something's going on. Yeah. And, and you know, there's enough research to kind of show and lay out that it's not that those 20,000 people all got jobs. Um, and it's not even that all of those 20,000 people were ineligible because they weren't working. That All the research suggests, you know, and, and this has been done in the past, that when you implement these things, the most people that are kicked off the programs and that lose the benefit, the majority of them are actually working, but they're working in low-wage jobs where you don't have consistent hours. So maybe one month you meet the monthly requirement and the next month you fall short. Also, you know, if you don't have access to a computer or the internet, there's barriers to actually registering and logging these things. Or off off the books. If we're talking about poor people, we're talking about a lot of underground economy. Exactly. Cash labor. So those things, they don't count. Um, and how does that tie back to race, which is the point of the piece? You know, I think that's a tough question to answer, and it's hard to speak to the specific motivations of the entities that are enacting these things now. And, you know, I, I leave it to the reader to make those conclusions. But I will say that, you know, the, the the line back to where that began and where those arguments began is overtly white supremacist. So, I mean, you can debate you know, what the causes and consequences are now, but you cannot debate that. That's a historical precedent. You tell the story of the nation's first black female MD. Yeah. And you quote from her, who was Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler? She was one of so many um, just different unsung heroes that I had never known about until I did this piece and, and, you know, were never taught some of these things in school, which is unfortunate. But Rebecca Lee Crumpler was born a free woman. She's a black woman. And she got her MD at a time when it was almost impossible for any woman, a white woman, to get a medical education, but she did. She was born and raised in Boston. Uh, she practiced there, and at the close of the Civil War, she decided to go to the South. She was the only black woman doctor, I think, at the time, and she was certainly the only black woman doctor to work for the Freedmen's Bureau, and she went and she set up shop in Virginia, and she worked in these communities of newly emancipated people, you know, who were struggling, as I said earlier, against so many different, you know, illnesses and shortcomings in care, um, and not only did she get an MD at a time when it was impossible for black women to do that, but she wrote a, med- a book called Medical Discourses, or I think it's called Medical Discourses. And it's um, it's just a discourse on the burdens of black diseases in black communities, or the burden of disease in black communities. And, you know, while congressmen are arguing, you know, white congressmen are arguing vehemently, and I think even the New York Times and probably some other media outlets are kind of accepting this argument of extinction and biological inferiority and, you know, even the depravity of the black race as as being responsible for the illnesses that they're dealing with. Mm. She did a very scientific study. And as I quote her in the piece, she said, you know, they seem to forget, they remember this when it comes to white illness, but they seem to forget when it comes to black illness, that there's actually a cause for every medical condition and that they may have the power to actually remove those causes and create health. And so it was just to me, there was so many different ways that the newly emancipated and then, you know, marginalized black communities throughout history pushed back against this kind of discrimination and exclusion from our healthcare system. But to me, that was just such an eloquent rejoinder because this was someone that, you know, by all accounts should never have risen to that level. And she did. And she spoke powerfully and with grace. My guest is Janine Interlandi, a member of the New York Times editorial board and a contributor to the Times 1619 project observing that this is the 400th anniversary this year, and in fact today, of the first African people brought to the United States in slavery and some of the ramifications for our country ever since. And her article is about health care. Then you get to the New Deal, Social Security, 
Yay, collective Yay. bargaining. Yay, but eight-hour workday. Ways <laughs> without saying race that black people were excluded. Yeah. So the way this played out was by the time you get to the New Deal, Deal era, the former slave states wielded enormous congressional power through a Southern voting bloc that was almost exclusively Democratic and overwhelmingly and pretty overtly segregationist. So these were white supremacists in Congress. And they were so powerful in such a united voting bloc that you essentially could not get legislation through without their consent. And the two things that they did, the way that they kind of secured the racial hierarchy that was prevailing in the South at that time. And that was a hierarchy that had delivered all of the region's power and resources to them at the, to the exclusion of former slaves. Um, they created a system by which if you wanted them to sign off on a legislation or to support that legislation, you had to grant them concessions. And the concessions they sought were one, states' rights. So yes, we will take all of these public progressive programs that provide aid to people in need because the South was a relatively, you know, a very poor region for black and for white. But you have to let us determine how to allocate those funds. You have to let us determine how to distribute those funds. And guess who they distributed the funds to? And guess who got cut out of the deal? We're talking about people that were white supremacists in Congress. And so that's how that happened. And that's how that played out. Um, a piece of discrimination history that I did not know, should have known, I guess, but didn't know until I read your piece. The American Medical Association did not originally allow black doctors to join. Yeah. So that was, I think it was basically through the local chapters. They allowed all the local chapters across the country to determine their old, own rules and regulations for who could be a part of the American Medical Association. But the consequence of that, again, was that black people were effectively barred and were not allowed. So it was in some states and not in others. I think it was in most states. I think it was actually in the majority of states. But if you want to get super technical yeah. about it, it wasn't necessarily the national organization. Right. It was actually the state organizations. But they've acknowledged that. So I don't think it's really in dispute. Mm -hmm. the, the National Association has. And you describe, therefore, how lay people... Um, sort of lay medical people, I guess, when formal education was out of reach, formed their own networks and yeah. systems. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. There's, there's like, you could do a whole book on it. And in fact, several great ones have, um, have been written about this. And I've tweeted out the links to some of those. Um, so in the wake of this exclusion, you know, black communities were not merely victimized. You know, they pushed back in so many completely profound ways. So if you look at just the lay black community, middle class black women created an entire like national public health movement, you know, just through lobbying, through charity, through just progressive work. And they they created this thing they called club women. It was, you know, like women from the National Society. I can't remember the name of the society, but, you know, there were all these different societies of middle class black women who were uh, pushing public health initiatives and going into the poorer communities and teaching them all of the things that they didn't have access to, to kind of create health because they didn't have access to doctors. They couldn't get into white hospitals, you know, and they went so far as to, there was an entire movement, like a black hospital movement where the hospitals were segregated and it was separate and unequal, which means the white hospitals were much better than the black hospitals. Instead of accepting that, the black community, you know, did all kinds of things to raise money and to acquire resources to create medical schools and to improve the black hospital. So if we have to be separate, maybe we can try to be equal. And they did that just through their own labors and their own efforts. And that was in the lay community. If you look at the black medical community, the doctors that were get acquiring MDs through like the two black medical colleges that they had access to, they were the ones that ultimately pushed back against the American Medical Association. And so it was this kind of for the AMA and unintended consequence, you excluded this group of people and now they have created their own power and now they are pushing for national laws that will support their own. We're almost out of time. Um, I do want to mention the Affordable Care Act. 
um, which you bring up in the article. And I remember when we were doing the show during the debate for the Affordable Care Act, and then when it first got passed, um, there were some guests we had who really lauded it as one of the major civil rights or, you know, racial equality laws of our era. It wasn't sold like that explicitly, but it really was. Yeah, it's kind of a, th- there's so many things I learned reporting this. This was not, and I've written a lot about Medicare and Medicaid, and I had no idea. But what basically happened was the National Medical Association, which the which was the leading association of black doctors, you know, they led the charge pushing for not just Medicare. It had originally started as a push for a uh, national health care system, specifically because black communities were being excluded from the white medical system that had arisen. They didn't have access to, you know, employer-based health insurance as much as white people did. Uh, they were segregated from the hospitals. They didn't have as many doctors. There was just multiple ways that they were shut out of the system. And so for them, of course, they wanted universal health care because that's the only way to make it equal. Um, the American Medical Association didn't want that because they wanted doctors to be in control of the health care system and they didn't want the government taking over, another familiar argument. Um, and so what happened was Medicare became a civil rights act. And it was actually through Medicare that hospitals were desegregated because when you pass civil rights legislation that said you cannot um, segregate by race any institution that receives federal funding. Okay, that's that's like one part. And then the second part is you pass Medicare, which gives every senior citizen in the country federally funded health care. That means every hospital in the country is going to be flooded with federal dollars. And when that happens, guess what? You can't segregate these hospitals anymore. So do you see the Medicare for All debate now through that lens? I think it's hard not to once you like learn the history and there's still so much like I think learning that needs to be done. But yeah, I mean, I think, again, the line is pretty clear and pretty direct. Just real quick, I want to introduce this upcoming clip. It's about the original welfare queen. You're probably familiar with that term. You may not even know that it refers to an actual person. It's just become a stereotype. It just refers to pretty much anyone who's on any sort of welfare program. But the original story started with one specific person, Linda Taylor in Chicago, And the takeaway for me from that story is that if it really does refer to one specific person who is clearly an extreme outlier, then it is by definition a terrible story to use to paint an entire group of people with one broad brush. So this clip starts after plenty of stories had been written about her in Chicago and the public hated her and now she was going on trial. R. Eugene Pincham argued that, in the grand scheme of things, what Linda Taylor did was irrelevant, because prosecuting people for welfare fraud was itself immoral. At the same time, Pincham used his institutional know-how to work the system in Linda Taylor's favor. That mostly meant grinding the legal process to a halt by requesting continuance after continuance. Taylor was indicted in 1974. She wouldn't go on trial until 1977. Pincham hoped that these tactics would cool the case down, that a long delay would make people forget how much they hated Linda Taylor. But Pincham hadn't known that Taylor would become a campaign issue. In 1976, Ronald Reagan got people angry about her all over again. The other consequence of Pincham's stalling was that he stalled himself out of the case. 
Two years in, Pincham was elected to a circuit court judgeship, and a pair of junior associates took over Taylor's defense. One of them was the 29-year-old Skip Gant. Gant wasn't optimistic about his chances to win in court, but the more he heard Reagan talk on the campaign trail, the more Gant believed that he wasn't just representing a single client. She was being painted as this big-time crook, and she was indicative of all black females who were on welfare. And my mother was on welfare. And my mother was nowhere close to being anything like Linda Taylor. That pissed me off. Gant needed to remind himself about the big picture, because the woman he was representing was an enormous pain. Most defendants understood the value of appearing demure in court, but Linda Taylor wouldn't stop wearing fur coats. Trying to get her to look like a school marm was just not going to work. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. She was just bent on being flamboyant. There was a part of her that I recall where she was really, she needed to be able to thumb her nose at society. She needed to be like in their face. There was this need to be defiant. Taylor was on trial for being a scammer, and Skip Gant felt like one of her marks. One time, she told him that she was staying at a particular hotel. When Gant sent an investigator to check it out, they found an empty lot. She was an incredible con. You're, you're sitting there and you're looking at her straight in the face and you're rolling your eyes back in your head going, yeah, okay, right, okay. No, there was nothing that she, could, she would say that you could believe. Until he was in his 50s, Ronald Reagan was known mostly as a B-grade movie actor. His political breakthrough came in 1964 when he made a televised speech on behalf of Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater. In that address, Reagan talked about the virtues of small government and individual freedom. He also argued that anti-poverty programs encouraged lawbreaking and bred dependency. Not too long ago, a judge called me here in Los Angeles. He told me that a young woman who'd come before him for a divorce. She had six children, was pregnant with her seventh. Under his questioning, she revealed her husband was a laborer earning $250 a month. She wanted the divorce to get an $80 raise. She's eligible for $330 a month in the Aid to Dependent Children program. She got the idea from two women in her neighborhood who'd already done that very thing. Goldwater lost that 1964 election, but Reagan became a rising star. In 1966, he was elected governor of California. Once in office, he made welfare reform one of his top priorities. Welfare spending had grown nationwide in the 1950s and 60s. Mass migration from the South to more generous northern states, the rise of the welfare rights movement, and a series of Supreme Court rulings all meant that lots of poor people, particularly poor black women, started receiving aid money for the first time. That aid money helped alleviate poverty. It also strained state budgets. Reagan promised that he could solve the welfare spending crisis without harming the truly needy. Here's Jalili Kohler-Hausman again. He claimed that the reason that the welfare rolls were expanding so much was because the rolls had been inundated with cheaters. There were many factors in his welfare reform proposal, but one of the key parts was that he wanted to, quote, prune the rolls, that he needed to thin them out by getting rid of 
all of the people that he claimed were there fraudulently, illegitimately. As governor, Reagan tightened welfare eligibility rules and reduced grants for those with outside income. These moves became a model for other states and the federal government, and they made Reagan a conservative hero. When Reagan ran for president in 1976, he cited these reforms as an example of his policy expertise. But John Sears, who managed Reagan's 1976 campaign, says the candidate was never all that concerned with how welfare worked. To him, politics was uh, more a matter of connecting with the people on a more personal basis. I mean, he uh, was not one to want to get to the bottom of issues or anything. They weren't the important thing to Reagan. It was making the connection. When Reagan talked about Linda Taylor, voters heard him loud and clear. In this clip from a campaign rally in January 1976, you can hear a collective gasp when he talks about the scope of Taylor's fraud. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans' benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. The anecdote spoke to voters' prejudices, and it inflamed their fear and their outrage. Welfare becomes an explanation for a whole host of frustrations that are happening economically. People are frustrated because not only do they feel like they're paying more taxes, but they feel like they're paying more taxes for people that they feel do not deserve it, that are not legitimate rights-bearing citizens. Reagan wasn't always scrupulous about the facts. He said that Taylor had stolen $150,000 or more, but she'd officially been charged with the theft of less than 9000 The prosecutor in her case said, you have to go with what you can prove. Reagan's standard of proof was a lot lower. And while Reagan never mentioned Linda Taylor's race, he stood accused of using coded racist language during his campaign. In addition to telling the Taylor story, Reagan talked about a so-called strapping young buck who bought T-bone steaks with food stamps. The New York Times described this as an indirect racial appeal, one that might attract supporters of the segregationist Alabama governor, George Wallace. Kohler Hausman says the indirectness of Reagan's welfare talk helps explain why it was effective. It's a way of channeling anxiety and frustration and rage against the changes that it that had happened in the 60s and 70s um, around racial hierarchy. Um, it's a way of channeling that politically without explicitly talking about race. John Sears denies that Reagan used race in an underhanded way to try to win elections. Sears also says that if Reagan did deploy racist tropes, he didn't realize what he was doing. I think it was more naivete than, uh, uh, you know, anything else. Uh, he was a very naive man in some ways. Sears says that he was never a fan of Reagan's repeated references to Linda Taylor and that he urged Reagan to quit mentioning the woman in Chicago. I thought it was demeaning to people on welfare, and so I thought it was a very bad thing to be saying. As the 76 campaign rolled on, Reagan did cut down on how often he mentioned Taylor. But he couldn't bring himself to stop using the anecdote entirely. The Linda Taylor story helped him connect with a huge swath of American voters, and he didn't want to risk losing that connection. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT. The other thing that we're seeing is opioid addiction and alcohol addiction, actually. one of the I think one of the interesting things, you, you talk about it, and one of the things that got a little buried when the big sort of Angus Deaton paper came out talking about what's going on with this mortality rate for white people is that alcohol had a lot had a lot to play with it, which is an interesting part of the story because I think we think about the opioid crisis as a crisis of the drug and the chemicals. And the fact that alcohol deaths are going up, too, says that there's something maybe else going on. I, I struggle with this data. I mean, I know it's there. I know it's important. I know that it's remarkable that we're seeing up to a four-year decrease lifespan for people who are in the majority group in this country. White men are having a falling lifespan in part, part of the country, which is unheard of. It just, that doesn't happen. It happens after famines. It happens after atomic bombs. It doesn't happen in the in the middle of a prosperous country that's an industrialized an industrialized country. So it's completely unheard of. And we're, am I correct that overall, across all races and everything, American lifespan has declined for three years in a row? That, that is true, but it's particularly, I mean, yes, that, that's definitely true. But I, I feel like white men are major drivers of this, in part because they had a higher perch to fall from yes. in a particular way. But again, we have the money and the means and the resources. And part of what I show, I mean, I, the reason I say I struggle with calling these deaths of despair, they are deaths of despair. And obviously what I'm trying to do in my book is put a racial lens around yep. a lot of that economic literature, say it's not just about drugs, it's about the ways that whiteness itself can be very self-destructive. And so it's a performance of whiteness that is leading to people supporting these politics, these policies. So it's, it's this interplay. I know, believe me, I know there is despair. I, I've seen it in a way Trump has seen it, and he speaks to that. And there is a lot of despair. People feel like they were in a position of privilege, whatever I, I might think of it. I'm, of course, I'm a white person as well. But there, there is a sense of frustration and, and helplessness. And I think that opioid crisis is part about despair. But uh, the point I try to make in the book is it's also about social policy. It's also about policies. It's also about infrastructure. It's about investing not just in treatment and rehab centers, but also in jobs and roads and bridges and schools. So the thing, the statistical thing that is happening in this country right now doesn't have a good precedent and doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, there is really no precedent for what, for what we're seeing. And the irony is the people who are being the most affected by it are the ones who are voting for it. And so this, this is where the theorization of dying of whiteness comes in, I think, in a really fascinating way, right? Because I think the theorization that we had seen before had a lot to do with these sort of forgotten places, the hollowing out of rural America, big macroeconomic and globalized trends 
that were ripping communities apart in ways that were creating behaviors that were dangerous from a health perspective and also psychological conditions that were dangerous, right? Increased levels of depression, anxiety, despair. You're saying something that is related to that but distinct, right? Because you're theorizing it in a particular way around race. Right. How? There are a couple of ways to address that. I've, let me just first start with what I think the main point about race is. It's that the politics that claim to restore or bolster whiteness end up turning whiteness itself into a high-risk category. That the categories that are supposed to make whiteness great again end up, as we've been talking about, shortening the lifespans of working-class white Americans and whiteness itself becomes a negative health indicator in the data that I look at. And that ties into several things. One is profoundly effective messaging that working class white Americans should not form common cause with other people across socioeconomic lines. In other words, the, the messaging is you should mistrust African Americans or immigrants because if you allied with those workers, that might form a very powerful force to demand concessions. So there's this idea of whiteness itself is distinct and it's played to through the history of guns, for example. History of guns, there's been a 200-year history in this country that gun ownership was a white prerogative. The rejection of the Affordable Care Act ties into these long histories that if you give health care to everybody, then your population is going to suffer. Tax cuts, this idea that lazy minorities are going to be getting what's yours. And so there's been this profound messaging that basically has people caught if you think about like the white working and middle class, they're caught between immigrants and minorities who are supposed to be nipping at their heels for what they want and people above who really are taking away the tax base that's helping them. And all of the energy and all of this is telling people you should look down at the people who are nipping at your heels, not up at actually the people who might really be causing what's screwing up you, screwing up your life. After writing the book, I've been asked a lot, what? But by people who probably in New York more than any place, uh, they're saying, what, what will it take for people to recognize that their politics are bad for them? What's going to take for them to wake up or something, something like that? And I keep thinking, well, from their perspective, they're making a, a sacrifice in order to win an election, right? So from their perspective, like, why are you going to be the person who asked that question when for them, we get to choose all the judges, we won the elections, um, factors like that. And so there is this mortal trade-off. But the flip side of this that I try to get at in the book is that that trade-off is also necessary for the success of the GOP platform. In other words, if working-class white Americans are not willing to lay down on the tracks, um, imagine, for example, if people in Tennessee had said, well, I'm a Republican, but dang, I want good health care. Or I'm in Kansas, another place I go in the book, and I'm a Republican, but I demand that we have good schools and we have good roads. The minute that people who are conservative Republicans start asking for those things, there's no way the GOP can do the, the tax cut bill. There's no way that the um, repeal Obamacare initiatives or any, any of that, none of that works. And so part of what I argue is that the success of GOP politics at this one moment depends on assumptions about the disposability of working class white bodies and that this has also been a story that's been a very regional story, right? That's yes. what I think is important now, right. that in a way it was easy for people in New York to overlook it because that was what was happening in Mississippi, and now this is a national platform. But here's the thing that I think is really important. I mean, the ways in which you get sort of white middle-class people to sort of ignore their class interests and have solidarity with, you know, the titans of capital, right? <laughs> you know, again, th this is an old story. But 
what ends up happening in the analysis is that people take the material concerns as real and the non-material concerns as like weird or like a swindle or a con. And so they think, well, these people are, are misassessing their own they're misassessing their own interests. And one of the things I think that you say in the book, you started with this guy, Trevor, I think, right? right? Yeah. Who's someone who is a, a sort of working class white guy with health problems who doesn't care if expanding Obamacare would help him personally. He doesn't want Obamacare to be expanded because other people, people of color particularly, will then get benefits. That like he's actually making an affirmative choice about what's more important to him. It, it was, I mean, this, this is the important thing. It's not that people are tricked. Right. Like they actually have like whiteness. The value of whiteness is actually more important. They're making an affirmative choice about what the thing is, the thing they like, they value that gives them a a sentence of well-being more than like having health care. The flip side of the question of when are Trump supporters going to wake up is when are people who are liberal going to wake up themselves to the, the depth of these ideologies that people are willing to put their lives on the line? That case of Trevor is a perfect example. This was a focus group I was doing in a low-income community in Tennessee, and this guy was on death's doorstep, had an oxygen mask under his nose, had liver failure. And even at that time, I asked him, you know, gosh, if you lived 20 minutes away in Kentucky, you would get much cheaper medications and better health care because they they adopted the, the marketplace and expanded Medicaid. And he said, I don't want any part of that because I don't want my tax scholars going to Mexicans and welfare queens. And the guy wasn't he wasn't crazy. He was basically saying, here's a choice I'm making yes. that I'm I'm a kamikaze I'm, in a way. I'm a, I'm laying down on the line for something that's important to me. And that thing is an ideology, a construction of whiteness where I might not be at the top of the pyramid, but I'm certainly not at the bottom. Uh, and, and in a way, uh, whatever benefit. I mean, obviously, there is a benefit to being white in this country. And he was he was willing to die for that. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. What became clear coming out of the 2016 election was that the bet that some politicians were making on Minnesota was that a racial wedge and racial polarization strategy rooted in right-wing populism was the path to victory in Minnesota. That's Doran Trons, the executive director of the faith-based progressive organizations Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota. And the particular manifestation that that took in our context was creating a kind of fear-based narrative about immigrants 
immigrants of color, and in particular, Muslim immigrants in Minnesota. So it sort of sat at the intersection of um, immigrants are taking our collective benefits. And secondly, Muslim immigrants in particular are advancing a strategy in Minnesota to create Sharia law, to foster terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. So it was basically trying to say that immigrants of color are fleecing the system away from regular white Minnesotans. And there is like a culture clash, a religious ethnic culture clash that needs to be confronted. Um, And in particular, we should be afraid of the growing Muslim population in our state. We heard this very clearly in the Super Eid backlash and with a huge electoral opportunity, several congressional races, both U.S. Senate seats, the Minnesota House, the state attorney general's seat and the governorship in play. There was this huge question. How do you campaign against these messages of hate and division that have become so prevalent and vitriolic with Trump? So we were looking for a brand that did a lot of things at once. And that made the challenge, I remember feeling like the challenge was really overwhelming. That's Sharon Goldsvik, CEO and founder of Uprise. We worked together on the campaign branding and execution. Like it had to be a brand that worked as a brand that had like all of the normal things that you need from a brand. Like it has to be kind of sticky and memorable and you have to imagine people wanting to identify with it and um, you have to imagine what it could look like visually and all of those things. But then it also had to like make the case for the race class narrative, which is this really complicated concept and also like appeal specifically to Minnesotans, which is who we were, you know, looking for. And it had to respond to the opposition messages that we knew were coming and come up with a way to encapsulate all of that in like three words. As you might imagine, it took some serious brainstorming to come up with the final name for the campaign in Minnesota. We landed on greater than fear with the affirmative tagline in Minnesota, we're better off together. These checked off all the boxes that Sharon listed. Plus they did something else. For folks who don't know, greater is Minnesotan for rural. It's the way they describe the parts of the state outside the cities. And when you're contending with anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-Muslim bias, greater Minnesota is where much of the problem really lies. Fear is so powerful and so pervasive. And it just, it clicks on a part of the brain that makes higher order reasoning almost impossible. And so countering it is so hard. The narrative we branded Greater Than Fear was rooted in research I'd led in Minnesota and nationally on how to talk about race, link it to class, and inoculate against dog whistling, those covert racist messages that are a mainstay of GOP campaigning. The research was done with Merge Left author Ian Haney-Lopez, Lake Research Partners, the think tank Demos, and the labor union SEIU. I know um, during our research, What we found when we were having our canvassers on the doors is that they would go out to some spots in like greater Minnesota, where it's been predominantly white for many, many decades. This is Janae Bates, the communications director for Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota. When they would knock on people's doors and say, you know, we we all deserve a Minnesota that has um, 
all of these beautiful, wonderful, joyful things to keep us healthy, happy, and whole as communities, the folks, you know, that they're going to door knock, they'd say, yes, absolutely, I want free health care. Yes, absolutely, I want quality education. Yes, absolutely, I'd love to have, you know, great child care and not have to cost my whole paycheck for it. But if my Somali neighbor is going to get it, I don't want it. And so what we learned from that is that you can't have an economic populism conversation without talking about race. When it's devoid of that, then you'll you completely decenter one those who are marginalized and hit hardest already, but also you get this tribalism that's not helpful for anyone. And so instead, we lean into race. We absolutely name it as a tool that's being used to divide us. Um, so that people realize that when we're talking about the possibilities of what we can have, we can only have it when we work together and when we're taking care of one another. What Janae is describing is hard enough to tackle on its own, but it was happening within a context where prominent national pundits and the political establishment are convinced that our core aim must be to win back working-class voters. Read white working class, and that this requires eschewing so-called identity politics, a term that any functional country would call human rights, and only talk economics, never race. Meanwhile, the messages from the right are designed as a one-two punch. First, stoke fear and resentment of some other that's purportedly on the take. Then, undermine people's desire for social welfare overall. Take a listen to this ad, for example. Okay, so I've lived in Minnesota all my life and I want to be nice, but I have had it. It took me two hours to get home. Every highway's closed. There's potholes everywhere. Still don't have my license tabs. They're building this train that no one wants. The schools are getting worse. And $100 million of taxpayer money for daycare was sent to Somalia. Oh, and now they want socialism. We need a new governor. If you're ready to take Minnesota back and make it nice again, vote for Jeff Johnson on August 14th. This is the Minnesota nice version of what right-wing campaigns are resorting to in every state. But for a long time, progressives across the country, including in Minnesota, were trying to win with an economic populist message that's silent about race. So in our research, we wanted to gauge the efficacy of that approach, which sounds like this. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. But that means little, because much of that wealth is controlled by a tiny handful of individuals. Despite advancements in technology and productivity, millions of Americans are working longer hours for lower wages. Wall Street and the billionaire class have rigged the rules to hand more wealth and income to the wealthiest and most powerful people of this country. We must send the message to these greedy billionaires that you cannot take advantage of all the benefits of Minnesota if you refuse to accept your responsibilities as Minnesotans. While the testing showed that our base was pretty into this message, our approaches that named race proved much more compelling to them. And the colorblind message failed to best the opposition messaging with the vast majority of voters in the middle. Folks we found can swing either toward the racially coded resentment the right wing is peddling or for the multiracial equitable democracy we're pitching. This research and the real world experience of campaigners knocking on doors tells us our economic appeals can't penetrate when we leave race unnamed because the right is never going to stop talking about it. <laughs> 
When we began to have these conversations all across the state, uh, what we also found is that, you know, white farm families out in greater Minnesota were having the same problems as Black families in Minneapolis, yet they were being told different stories about who's to blame and who they should be angry with about it. And uh, so we have to talk about race. As a matter of fact, we we need to center it and make sure that when we talk about it, like we're very explicitly naming the, the dog whistles that are used to divide us, but also name that what we really need and deserve and want is a multiracial democracy where everyone's in and no one's out, which means that white people are welcome to the table, right? And and a lot of times I think that's that tends to be the issue. It's that it's it's not that white people just hate people of color. It's that they feel like they're not being included or that they one day won't be included. And maybe it has something to do with historically going the other way and, you know, a fear of some kind of retribution. But either way, um, what we what we knew for sure was that we had to talk about race. So what does it mean to make this pivot to talk inclusively about race? In Minnesota, it means creating a definition of Minnesotan that includes all of us. So we did. And it sounded like this in an ad that we ran online and on the radio. In Minnesota, we know long winters. And we know how to dig our neighbors out of the snow. Because whether it's our first Minnesota winter or our 50th, we've all been there. So when certain politicians want to divide us and make us afraid, we know that means they've got nothing else to offer. We're on to them. There are lots of ways to be Minnesotan, and all of them are greater than fear. In Minnesota, we're better off together. Vote greater than fear between now and November 6th. This new messaging gave us the ability to put forward an enticing, affirmative vision of the world we want. And it also gave us a way to contend with dog whistles from the right. And that's critical, because politics isn't solitaire. We don't just have people listening to what we say. Our messaging has to act as a rejoinder to what people hear from the opposition, too. Our opposition will continue to press their case, usually with far more money than we've got to make people hear it. And we've seen that dog whistling, using racially coded appeals to demonize people of color in order to undermine belief in the collective, that's their core approach. As Ian Haney-Lopez has spelled out very clearly, whether it's OG dog whistles like welfare queen or a culture of people expecting handouts or slightly newer ones like illegal immigrants or sharia law these statements don't come out and name race but they're absolutely understood as being about racial groups and they serve not just to vilify the people in these groups they are meant to undermine the sense that there is an us a shared collective a need for government if our messaging isn't contending with that then our economic promises have no way of penetrating in an arena in which the right is using fear, resentment, and deliberate division, precisely because they have no economic argument to make. It seems to me that that the, the big issue that that Democrats have and that and that sort of more moderate leaning liberals have is they they want to and maybe even some that are quite committed on the left but white is they they want to have this class conversation 
but they, they don't quite know how to connect it to the race conversation. They're either afraid to connect it because that will reinforce the racial resentment or fears, or they just don't have a lot of experience and skill in connecting it. And so they, they just want to stay with class. And it seems to me that, and your book documents this so well, that if these you know, socioeconomic and racial issues are so connected and the politics of racial resentment is affecting the decisions people make, we, we, we can't run away from the way these things have been racialized. We can't just say, for instance, hey, we all need better health care, so let's get better health care, or we all need more public funding. Because if, in my mind, subconsciously, I'm connecting public anything to black people and brown people, which is what the research says people do. If I'm connecting the notion of government intervention in the economy, whether it's health care, housing, income support, schools, or anything else, with those people, the idea that you can finesse me and not mention it actually is bad because that allows me to remain in this sort of bubble of innocence where I'm not even having to confront the way I'm being manipulated. I, you know, if the subconscious stuff does a bigger number on me precisely because it stays subconscious. Whereas if a politician is willing to say for 50 years, these folks have manipulated us, not you, us, all of us to connect the dots between anything for people in need, working people and this notion of unjustified others taking things from you and making that connection explicit so that people have to really grapple with the way that we're being played off against each other. And, and, and sometimes I don't see that piece in like the way Bernie Sanders talks about this stuff where he just sort of, I think, skates around race or the way that a lot of traditional organizers who come out of sort of white models and didn't get grounded in race early on, they sort of, you know, they talk around it as if, as if simply appealing to rational self-interest will work. But as, as I think your book makes clear, like there are interests, however twisted they may be, that are served, psychological needs that are met by this politic of resentment, by what Du Bois called the psychological wage of whiteness. When he used that term, he knew what he was talking about, even in an age when we didn't have all the psych research that we have now. Like there, It wasn't that they were voting against their interests. They were defining their interests differently. Beautifully put. I mean, I'm I'm so torn about um, the Bernie Sanders question that you bring up because on one hand, I do think that there's a lot of promise of thinking about issues that will um, join potentially join people and unite people uh, across you know class lines. But my my framework is race here, and very consciously so. And and part of it on one hand is to say that there's not us and them. In other words, there is white privilege in this country, and the examples I'm going to show you are exaggerated examples of similar systems of privilege that surround me when I walk down the street, and I have to be honest about that. And so part of it is it's too easy for white liberals to say them when it when when that is not them, right? And so part of it that's part of that's part of the issue, I think. But then when when like for example, let's take you know um, a, a, an appeal to Medicare for all. There's a long history of resistance to government-sponsored healthcare in, in the South. More recently, like five years ago, with the response to Obamacare. Right. And so to just jump in and say, oh, yeah, we have this great idea that's government-sponsored healthcare for everybody without addressing the racial politics of that issue, uh, to me, is, a, is is the wrong way to go about it without having also a conversation about whiteness. Same thing with guns, jumping in and saying, we want universal background checks with also an, an understanding right. how guns have been tied to issues of whiteness and, and openly talking about that.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Now This, featuring a summation of Jonathan Metzl's findings for his book, Dying of Whiteness. The Brian Lehrer Show had on Janine Interlandi from the New York Times 1619 Project to draw the connection between slavery all the way up to our lack of universal health care. We heard a clip from The Queen, a miniseries from Slate that dives into the history and details of Reagan's original welfare queen. Chris Hayes spoke with Jonathan Metzl on Why Is This Happening, about the value of whiteness literally being traded for early deaths. Brave New Words told the story of the messaging campaign in Minnesota that addressed racism head-on and won. And finally, we just heard Speak Out with Tim Wise, who also spoke with Jonathan Metzl about why racism must be addressed as part of any progressive messaging. Members will hear more from the Metzl interview on Why Is This Happening to learn why, when conservative policies make conservatives' lives worse— it often only makes them double down even harder. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now today I have a bonus clip for you. It's sort of along the lines of today's topic, but not quite. You'll see what I mean. But this clip contains one of the most important lessons that I have had clarified for me in months, so I definitely needed to share it with you, but it also requires a little bit of a setup in case you're not familiar with this story. Uh, so, so this is another clip from Brave New Words. We heard from them about the messaging in Minnesota. This one is about a messaging campaign going on in Australia as part of the fight against illegally detaining asylum seekers. Asylum seekers uh, have been showing up in Australia on boats, and for more than a decade or so, Australia has been arguably illegally detaining these asylum seekers on islands that Australia controls. It's a horrible human rights crisis and, and measures up quite nicely with us, you know, detaining children in cages, that sort of thing. So have a listen to this clip now that you know what it's about, and we'll talk about it afterward. The thing I think is that the underlying debate has always been about race. It's not actually about population growth or infrastructure or criminals or, or cues or anything. It's actually always been about race. It's always been about who was arriving, like the color of their skin, their faith, and that they were the other. And that goes to how our sector attempted to respond. So for the last, you know, 12 years, apart from, you know, more uh, radical elements, what the human rights sector in Australia has responded to this debate with has been sound arguments about international law, the right to seek asylum, justice, logical arguments about money, logical arguments about numbers, logical arguments that... Well, more, you know, you've got to be pretty desperate to come by boat rather than plane, all of these logical arguments. But over the last 15 years, what we have failed to address at every point was the underlying racism. And indeed, when we did the messaging research in 2015, we tested exactly what Shen is referencing, the status quo message that came directly from how advocates in the sector were framing this issue. It sounded like this. 
It is not illegal for refugees to come here. And Australia must fulfill its humanitarian and legal obligations to asylum seekers and refugees under the international law and the refugee convention. Seeking asylum is a humanitarian issue rather than an issue of border security or defence. And people fleeing persecution, violence and torture must be treated with compassion and dignity. Mandatory detention in offshore facilities is cruel and inhumane. As signatory to the Refugee Convention, Australia must fairly and efficiently assess the applications of all asylum seekers who arrive in Australian territory, including territorial waters, irrespective of their mode of arrival. This message garnered high marks from the advocates themselves, and it did well with the base, but it was unpersuasive to 80% of Australians. It was lower rated than the opposition's message, which their base ate up and was happy to repeat to those in the conflicted middle. So we came up with and tested new messaging. No matter our differences, most of us believe that all people deserve to live in peace. All policies for people seeking asylum should respect human dignity and take place in full public view. Doing what's right means upholding people's basic rights, safety and fairness. We cannot turn an issue of human rights into political bickering. We all have a stake in making the world a safer place. So we need to fairly examine each person's asylum case in a safe space and quickly integrate the people requiring asylum into our communities. This isn't a matter of right or left, but quite simply a matter of right and wrong. This winning message didn't just earn high marks from the advocates and the base. It was also persuasive to those conflicted people in the middle who had rated the opposition's message highly as well. Because Here's the thing about those middle-of-the-road voters that the political class around the world misunderstands. They're not actually seeking some moderate in-between answer. They toggle between competing assumptions about, quote, the way the world works and what's common sense. They're capable of buying into opposition narratives of fear, resentment, and xenophobia. But they're also able to understand how people seeking asylum are just that, people, who merit the same rights and recognition as anyone else, regardless of what they look like or where they happen to be born. The task of a good message, what we tested for here, is to engage the base to move them past just simply agreeing with what we say to wanting to repeat it. Otherwise, the message has no way to spread. And the message needs to prove persuasive enough that once the middle hears it over and again from the base, it sounds true and right and like common sense drowning out the opposition story that their base is always willing and eager to repeat. So the story is important in general, but for my purposes, the story is just a setup. The most important thing from this clip is the insight that those in the middle who see themselves or project themselves or uh, answer polls as being in the middle politically, they're not looking for a middle solution. They haven't thoughtfully examined all angles and decided to come down in the middle. They're in the middle because they can be persuaded by one worldview or another. And so to put this in concrete terms, this is why, and you can explain this to your 
confused family members who can't imagine why someone from West Virginia would see Bernie Sanders in a positive light. This is why people like Bernie Sanders do well with unexpected voters. He makes a forceful case for a progressive vision to people who've only ever heard a debate between conservative and conservative light. When people only get that small bit of debate— They don't even have an opportunity to be persuaded by the other side. When the left gives up on people, they don't bother trying to be persuasive. Those people can be left behind, and then they will be convinced by the other side who will take the time to hammer home persuasive ideas of fear and racism and selfishness and all of that. So if you're a politician or you work on a campaign or you do messaging of any kind— Please have this be the thing that you take away. Don't message to people in the middle thinking that that's where they're going to stay and trying to present yourself as amenable to their middleness. Make a strong and impassioned case that is convincing to people in the middle so that they will move to the left. Okay, so I just wanted to drive that home. And now we actually do have voicemails for today. So now we will hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in. I kind of thought I was back in time with Dave from Olympia, but I guess he's up there with you and I'm stuck here by myself. Anyway, episode 1315, Rudy Giuliani, at least the first part of it anyway, the first 15 minutes. Thanks for that. Um, it's interesting. A whole whole host of, of memories and thoughts have swirled back in my head. Rudy Giuliani in office was before my political awakening in the 80s I was doing construction and I wasn't really although I thought I was really not racist and understood race and so forth but I was still calling myself as colorblind and really not understanding things which leads me to think that a lot of what I was experiencing and my own behaviors was you know, subject to my upbringing and my surroundings being in in construction and union and non-union jobs and really not understanding things. And so therefore thinking of Giuliani as doing a good job and, you know, right on for him, whereas now I look back at that and maybe my behavior as not acceptable and not appropriate and wow, how I've grown. So thank you for that. Um, 15 minutes can really give a reflection on, at least for me, for my life. Um, So I appreciate that. Hopefully, maybe some other people will learn from that as well. Just before sending this, I started thinking, gosh, when am I going to be 10 years from now looking back at me today? And where will I be then? And what's wrong with me now? What am I thinking now? Anyway, stay awesome. Hey, from Olympia. Oh, wow, context. Like the whole, your discussion around mid-roll and their um, you know, advertising model, everything kind of falls into place that you've been talking about. And, you know, it's just that the context and the details were super interesting. A few thoughts I thought I might share. I listened probably to an inordinate number of podcasts, a few of which have kind of converted to that model. And it seems like all I ever get are the pre-recorded bullshit ads. 
usually advertising other podcasts that I should have, you know, I have no interest in getting involved in. It doesn't seem super targeted to me. It seems like random and weird. But yeah, the thing where, you know, if you decide to kind of listen to some back episodes and you re-download them, it's like they're brand new ads that are sort of, you know, relevant for today. They're not, you know, the dated ads that were recorded back then. It struck me as weird initially, um, but the ads to that service are so, you know, they're, they're just these random pre-recorded radio DJ voice horribleness. I skip right through them. The, you know, ads from a podcast host that you know, you kind of are used to, you like their voice. Like, yeah, listen to the ads, it's fine. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not an unpleasant thing at all, and that's why I totally listen to the ads. But, man, when it's jarring like that, especially when it doesn't fit with the theme and style of the show, it's just, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see how advertisers think that's going to be a, a compelling uh, way of, of getting people to buy their products. The other thing, and so I don't know... And I, I, I don't know to what extent these other programs are um, as integrated as what Midroll thinks they're going to become, but ridiculously mistargeted ads. Um, uh, you know, a segment of the podcast they listen to are kind of science-based, skeptical, atheist, uh, very reason. Some of them are actively anti-religious, but. Um, it's like the the algorithm picks up. Oh, this is a podcast about religion. You need like the you know the the daily inspiration from the Bible app. <laughs> you get these weird, bizarrely mistargeted ads sometimes. And I don't know. I'm not sure that Midroll is pursuing a super wise option for themselves either. I totally see how advertisers are going to make out um, following this plan. But it's unclear to me how even Midroll is going to be benefiting. Certainly not, you know, the content producers. I think you got the point I was trying to make. Anyhow, best of luck with the membership drive. Hope for the best. All right now, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. All right, let's knock these out. First, Alan, uh, get used to being wrong. My takeaway from the work I've been doing for 13, almost 14 years is that being wrong should be seen as the norm. We should always be evolving. And I know Alan agrees that that's the point he's making. You know, if, if I believed such wrong things 10 years ago, what am I thinking now that could be wrong? That's exactly the right way to look at it. I, I started to think of it as changing your mind or learning new things and and changing your perspective on things it's sort of like working a muscle that if you don't do it at all you've never done it then being told that you're wrong or being confronted with facts that you 
don't agree with or that don't fit your perspective, it's devastating. It, it, you're, you know, you're the 70 pound weakling who can't do a single push up. There's, there's no way for you to, you know, manage to exert yourself, but it's something that you can build over time. And once you realize that this is the norm and that learning new information comes or should come naturally, then it, it, it just becomes uh, well, natural that you don't even think of it as changing your mind. You're just constantly ingesting new information that, you know, slightly in one way or another alters or perfects or refines your way of seeing the world. And so then it's not so jarring usually that you have to realize, oh my God, like everything I thought was wrong because you'll be making slight, you know, adjustments as you go. And and when you find out you're wrong about something, it's no sweat at all, water off a duck's back. And I've been talking maybe a little on the main show, but mostly in the bonus show about political comedy and, and how it's, you know, it's mostly dead. It's, it's at best, it's on life support. Satire, it's like one of the hardest things to do right now. There are a few avenues of comedy that, that are, are still chugging along. Um, but, uh, but political comedians are having a hard time right now. But, uh, yeah, as part of that conversation, I told the members one of my favorite comic strip artists. The strip is called F minus, and there's a perfect, addition that that fits this conversation and it translates well to audio the the whole image is just a man and a woman sitting on a couch watching the news and the guy says you know what's impressive about me i've changed my mind about a variety of issues over the years yet at no point have i ever been wrong and i think that sums it up pretty well secondly dave thank you for calling in and describing the horrible future that lies in store for all of us, you know, not just podcast creators, but mostly listeners, which I also am. You know, this is what happens. Podcasting starts as a nice sort of organic movement, hosts forming relationships with their listeners, and then it, you know, monetization kicks in, but producers are able to create ads that listeners don't hate, and hosts are able to make a little bit of money to sustain their hobby, which for some of us lucky ones turned into a job. And so what does capitalism do? Takes it too far. And then you end up with what Dave describes. Horrible, badly produced, annoying, ineffective marketing gets imposed on everyone, whether they want it or not. Hopefully the industry will wake up and figure it out. You know, we, we can hope, uh, and, and we'll wait and see. In another message that Dave left, he, he said that he, he liked my strategy about putting a, a bonus limerick in the show notes. If you've been listening all the way to the end, you know I've been doing limericks at the very end of the show. Uh, but as a special incentive, I've got a bonus one for you again today in the show notes. So, Check it out. You know, when you're when you're safely off the road, go and check out the show notes and notice that it is strategically positioned right next to our link to our Patreon page. So you can tap on that to see how our fundraiser is going. And because I refuse to take us all down the path that Dave just described, the show is going to be losing a huge chunk of income at the end of the year. So I'd really appreciate if you would sign up, even if it's only for a couple of bucks a month, because every little bit matters. 
Now that is going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. Now more than ever, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now for today's news by Limerick at Liberix has a comment on Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax that billionaires are not excited about. While programs Liz Warren has planned give middle-class people a hand, the wealthy object the tax she collects is harmful to billionaires. And 